Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've gathered us together today. We pray for those who are out sick and are still traveling from this Thanksgiving weekend, especially for Father Walt, that you would give his doctors wisdom. Pray that you would stir up in us a desire for a clean conscience, the desire to flee from sin and to flee unto you again and again until at the great last day we would see your face and rejoice in you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to think for a moment about what you do when you go to make a big purchase. I'm not talking about a computer or, or a TV. I'm talking about a house or a car. A house is perhaps the easy exa- easiest example of this. There are a lot of things that you consider. What town would I like to live in? Maybe your job has moved you to another place. Maybe you've decided to, decided to retire someplace lovely. So that determines that answer to that question. But then you need to decide what kind of neighborhood do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a subdivision? Do you want to live kind of in a country-type setting? Do you want to live in a big field? Do you want acreage or no acreage? All of these questions start boiling around in your head, and then you have to answer the question of, what do you want in a house? Do you want a big house where you can have lots of friends and family over? Or do you want a small house that's, at least hypothetically, easier to clean and keep up with? You see, when you make these big purchases, it's, it's the same for a car or anything else. You need to consider all of these things, and it's a slowish deliberation. This morning, we come to this passage that perhaps made some of you a little uncomfortable or was hard to read or come to grips with, both in the matter, subject matter, but also there's some weird content in it that we have to break down. But as we dive into it, we have to recognize one thing. It is that the cost of discipleship is high. And so it's worth considering these costs. It's worth considering all of these elements because that cost is high. It starts very simply, and and, sorry, we'll, we'll spend a lot of time on the first half of the first sentence because it's very important. It starts with whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. It's easy to think that he's talking about the children that that George covered. I don't know where George is. He's somewhere. That George covered last week. There he is. It's easy to think, right, because he talks about these little ones. But what he's actually talking about is his disciples. Because we get that clue when we realize that he says, the little ones who believe in me. So it becomes clear that it's those who are following him. And if we flip to Matthew chapter 18, we see that there's the parallel of this passage there. Where Jesus says something very important for understanding the rest of this passage. He says, truly, 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 I say unto you, unless you turn... And become like children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, see, Matthew catches this thing that Mark somehow missed for whatever reason. What Jesus is pointing out is that to be a disciple of Christ, you have to be like a child. Now, I think one of the most adorable things, and please don't think I'm a masochist, is watching a child fall. Not when they hurt themselves, that's really sad, but, but when they just kind of are toddling along and they fall over, the first thing they do, what's the first thing that they do? They look. They look to see who saw them fall. I'm sorry. If mom is there, nine times out of ten, they start to cry. If dad is there, unless they're actually hurt, they just get themselves up and keep going. And if some, nobody is there, if you're watching them and they don't know you, I don't know exactly what they're going to do. But it's really important, right? They look and see, am I safe? Should I cry out to mom or dad or not? That's what it's like to be a child in Christ. Right? Who do you look to when you stumble? Who do you look to when you fall? Who do you cry out to when you're struggling or hurting? Who do you cry out to when you're happy and filled with joy? A child knows the answer. To mommy or daddy. And that's what we're called to be like. We're called to have that faith that knows immediately when we fall, when we get hurt, when we're scared, when we're happy, to cry out to God, our Father. In other words, Jesus starts immediately by tying his disciples to this little tiny child who knows better than they do how to live. Jesus is showing us is showing you that in order to be his disciple, you are called to cling to him as a child clings to his mom and dad. But of course, this passage is not simply about belief or needing childlike faith, but it offers a really sharp warning, doesn't it? Still in verse 22a is this this idea that whoever believes in the, whoever causes One of these little ones who believes in me to sin pulls out this idea that we can cause others to sin. Now, sin, of course, is a hot-button topic, and probably at least one or two of you are like, oh boy, this is going to be fun. But we don't like to talk about it. However, it's important as Christians that we understand what sin is and why we should take it so importantly. In part, because those around us today would say, no, no, we're all basically good. But if we carefully observe the world that's around us, we see that that hypothesis is just being blown to shreds. There's all kinds of hurt and pain in the world around us. There's all kinds of sorrow brought about by human action. But instead, if we stop and understand what sin is, it gives us a greater clarity In this confused age. Think about what we read at the beginning of every service. Think about that greatest commandment. Jesus is confronted, right? And and he's asked, well, what is the greatest commandment? And he says to them, which is what we read, the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, The greatest commandment, which is drawn from the gospel according to St. Mark, as well as other gospel accounts, reflects the law itself 
in Deuteronomy, which says roughly the same thing. But it shows us very vividly and clearly what sin is. To sin is to fail to love God. To sin is to fail to love your neighbor. In other words, anytime you profane the image of God, or his, anytime you profane God or his image, that is, men and women, anytime you doubt God and his ability to see you through, anytime you turn your back upon him, try to do something on your own strength, anytime you grumble at a driver and say something awful about them, anytime you're snarky with your spouse, anytime the list can go on and on, You fail to love that person, or you fail to love God. You have sinned. And so sin provides this answer to this thing that many people today wrestle with. And that is, why do I do the things I know I ought not to do? And why do I fail to do the things that I know I ought to do? Perhaps you too wrestle with that question. But this passage is talking about a very particular thing that's lost a little bit in our translation. And that is, it talks about this idea of bringing someone to the downfall of their faith. And it's, again, essential that we understand this because we live in a time and place where this idea of deconstruction is overwhelmingly common. And this passage brings to light at least two causes of it. There's an external cause, and then there are internal causes. The external causes, of course, come out in this first little tiny bit of where whoever is part of that important thing. It's a harsh warning against those who might try to convince you that the Jesus is not Lord. And there are plenty of people out there who would delightfully tell you that Jesus is not Lord. There are some even who would try and convince you that Jesus isn't a historical figure, which is proved beyond the imagination of a doubt. The question about Jesus is whether he's Lord or not. And of course, we know that he is. But sometimes we even fail to show that Jesus is Lord passively by just allowing somebody to continue in their ignorance. But rather, we're called to magnify this reality, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior, and Jesus is King. But now this hits more close to home, as Jesus reminds us that there are internal causes. He he says says to his disciples, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to stumble, causes you to lose faith in me, get rid of it. It's very graphic, right? But we should understand that this is hyperbole. Please don't go home and cut your leg or your foot or your eye out. It's an exaggeration, though, to make clear the incredibly high cost of sin. It's a hyperbole to drive home the reality that when we sin, it is grievous. And what he's really trying to set in the disciples' minds is what you do with your day, what you listen to, what you consume, what you think about, affects your soul in deeply profound ways. 
Next week, we start Advent. And at the end of the service, I read that's, that's that long, remember that long announcement that the following week we're going to have Holy Communion. If you want to follow along at the end, you can find it on page 86. But I would actually encourage you to take that home and read it throughout the week. I don't read this long announcement because I'm bored or I want to keep you from going and getting your cup of coffee quicker. It's a serious and important invitation to introspection, to look at your soul, to ask the question, are there things that I'm struggling with that I need to address? Are there things that I need to confess to my pastor and priest? Are there things that I need help walking through? That's what the invitation on page 86 is all about and why we read it every, every change of the season so that we might have this opportunity to look within ourselves. But Jesus also outlines the high cost of sin, sinning, of stumbling, of turning your back on him. What is especially interesting is about, about this passage is the way that it is written. There's almost this poetic form that we lose because we, we condense it into prose. But it, it, it most likely was part of the oral tradition. It was memorized by the believers, early believers in the church. And Mark knew it, knew the context in which it was said and written. So he wrote it down so that we would know, remember it. But what I think, I'm pretty sure this was used for and why it would have been so popular in the oral tradition was because most likely it was part of the catechetical process for new believers. For new believers to understand the cost of what it means to follow Christ, but also to remember the call of following to Christ is holiness, is a devout following and focus upon him. So we get to the first piece of imagery. Finally, we're moving out of 42a. And that is that of a millstone. And the imagery, and we can admit that the imagery here is really, really kind of shocking. Right? He talks about tying a millstone around somebody's neck. And this isn't like a little millstone. This is going to be a big, wide millstone that a donkey would have to pull in order to crush the grain. It's not something that you and I could pick up, you know, even if like four or five of us got together. It'd still be really hard to pick up. He talks about tying that millstone around somebody's neck and then dropping them into the sea. That's better than causing somebody to stumble. Ooh, right? that's, That's grotesque at best. But the imagery is meant to pause us, to recognize the cost of sin to your soul. And then Jesus goes on to say it's better to cut off or pluck off these different parts of your body, your hand, your foot, or your eye, than to sin and enter into hell. The word Jesus uses here for hell is Gehenna. And in modern times, it's a matter of controversy. You've probably heard at least a little bit about Gehenna, and you're like, I heard that word somewhere, I don't know where. And the reality is, it shouldn't be controversial. By the time Jesus came along, it was, it was firmly established as a metaphor for the place of eternal punishment. But the history of Gehenna is what makes this metaphor particularly haunting and frightening. In 2 Kings, you can read about this. 
two of the more despicable kings, right? Israel goes through these phases and they have really good kings and then they have really bad kings and two of the really, really, really bad kings actually sacrificed their sons in this place of Gehenna, right? If that's not awful, I I don't know what is more awful than that. And then a good king comes along after these two awful kings, and his name was Josiah, and you might have heard of the reforms of Josiah, and, and you can read about some of them in 2 Kings 23 and so on. But one of the things he did in his reforms, because of how awful this place was, he turned it into a trash dump. So all of Jerusalem would go out. It's, it's kind of down at the southwest end of Jerusalem. They'd go out, and they'd dump their trash in there, and they would burn it day and night. And so between these two things, by the time Jesus comes along, it's thoroughly established that this, this is a good place to kind of imagine what eternal punishment might be like. And, and so I think that now we've, we've actually ratcheted it up from the millstone to this imagery of how costly sin is. To sin is to be cast into this, to cast yourself, really, into this burning trash dump where if, if ghosts and haunting exist, that's, it's definitely there. <clears throat> now, I know we've hit the point where some of you are probably a little uncomfortable. And if I'm honest, when I consider my own sin, when I consider the times that I have failed to radiate Christ, the times that I have sinned against others, the countless times that I have failed to follow God and to trust him and to glorify him with my life, grief does, in fact, overwhelm me. And so if you've now arrived at this point in the sermon and grief is overwhelming you, Come with me now. The cost of discipleship isn't simply turning your back on sin. If you only do this, if, if you're snarky with your spouse and you're like, I resolve that from now on I will not be snarky with my spouse. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. You are going to fail. The cost of discipleship is this. Not only that you turn from your sin, but you turn to something better. You turn to Christ. For Christ has bought you from your sin and welcomes you home week in and week out. He welcomes you home day in and day out, hour in and hour out, minute in and minute out. This is the good news, my friends. If we've gotten this far and you're overcome with that grief that I just described, Jesus is calling you home. He is calling to you, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. He will take your guilt and make it his and make you his. And so we now come now to verse 49 and 50. We've discovered, we've seen the cost of discipleship. And now we see the call of discipleship. For everyone, Jesus says, will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? 
Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. This is that part that I was talking about. We got the that we've got through the, the kind of hard parts to the really confusing part. And there's all kinds of ink spilled on what in the world is Jesus talking about being salted with fire? What is most likely is he's referring to Leviticus 2.13, where we learn that the temple sacrifices were required to be salted. In other words, he is calling his disciples. He is calling you to be a living sacrifice. He is calling you to be salted so that you can live a life of sacrifice for him. One person summarized these two verses especially well when he wrote, the disciple who takes up the cross of Jesus and follows on the way to Jerusalem, who nurtures the faith of another believer, who willingly forsakes things precious but injurious to the life of faith, is himself a holy sacrifice, a living sacrifice, as St. Paul calls it. In other words, the call to follow Christ is a high calling. It is to forsake the precious things of the world for the holy things of God. It is to pour yourself out so others will know the goodness and grace of Christ. It is to evangelize the unbeliever. It is to disciple one another. It is to live at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. As I came back from being out with Sam for his surgery, I was talking to George about how the passage often dictates the tone of a sermon. And so to demonstrate this, we looked at his passage from last week, and I said, well, let's look at next week's text. And it was a very good contrast, to say the very least. This text is hard, and it's okay to admit that a text is hard. But it shows us this incredible cost, the cost that Jesus paid for our souls and the demands of that cost. And more so, it fits especially with today. Today, which is the Sunday before Advent, or the Sunday next before Advent. More commonly, it has been called Stir Up Sunday, because of the beginning of the collect. because it stirs up our consciences. It invites us to reflect upon our life in Christ, and it invites us to follow him. It invites us to live for the glory of Christ, God through Christ. So for this glory of God through Christ, are you willing to forsake holiness, forsake worldliness for holiness? For the glory of God through Christ, are you willing to be a living sacrifice poured out that others might know the grace of Christ? For the glory of God through Christ, are you willing to live through that high cost? But know that what you forsake, what you gain in forsaking this world, is far, far better. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.